We're going through Mark's Gospel on Sunday mornings and we've got to chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you'll find it a big help if you've got Mark chapter 2 in front of you. (laughs) If you looked at a notice sheet for this morning, you'd see that uh, it's been given a title, Rejecting Jesus. Well, what a miserable subject that is. Why come to church and hear about rejecting Jesus? Well, the answer is because that's what God's word talks about here in Mark chapter 2. Because God's word doesn't avoid facing reality. The reality is many people reject Jesus. If you haven't done so yet, you will at some point come across people rejecting Jesus. It can trouble us. It can make us wonder, well, have I got it right to believe in him when there are all these other people who don't? And some of them have heard a lot about him and yet still reject him. Maybe I've got it all wrong. And so we need to see how Jesus responds to people rejecting him. We're going to do it very simply. Got a very simple structure this morning. Two halves. The first half is going through Mark 2 to see what the theme is. And the second half is drawing out some lessons from that. So very simple, through Mark 2, and then see some lessons from it. So first of all, the theme of Mark 2. Now, imagine that someone, let's call her Jess, I'm just completely making someone up, takes you for a mystery trip somewhere, and you're blindfolded, and you're taken somewhere, and you arrive. And the blindfold comes off, and Jess says, right, where are you? And you say, well, I can see some oak trees over there. And she says, yes, but where are you? Well, those are silver birch trees there. Yes, but where are you? Well, there's a few rowan trees behind. What are you getting wrong? There's an English saying for this. Not seeing the wood for the trees. You've identified the trees, but you've not identified you're in the middle of the outwoods. You're not seeing the wood for the trees. Now, we easily do that with the Bible. We could go through Mark 2. And we could say, oh, look, that's interesting. There's a bit on fasting, verse 18 onwards. We could have an interesting talk on fasting. And that could be quite useful. We could say, well, what's this funny bit in verse 21 about new wine in old wineskins? Well, we could spend some time in that, and that would be quite interesting. But we could be keeping on looking at the individual trees without noticing the wood we're in. In other words, what's it all about? Let's discover what the theme of Mark 2 is by trying to quickly go through the whole lot. And by the way, I'm taking Mark 2 as basically finishing at chapter 3, verse 6. Seems to be that that's where the break is. So let's have a quick overview of it. Well, I don't know how quick I'll manage to be, but we're going to try to go through the whole lot. First of all, verses 1 to 12 of Mark 2. We have here this famous and funny story about a man let through a hole in the roof. And children, I expect you've heard this story and it's quite interesting, isn't it? Some people who break a roof open and let a man through it. But what's right in the middle of the story? Verses 6 and 7. Right in the middle, verses 6 and 7, is some Bible teachers They're sitting there having a look at what's going on and they don't think much of Jesus. And in particular this, they say, how can this fellow claim to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And they've half got a good point. 
Think of it this way. Our home group next week's got its home group social. Let's imagine that, that home group social that Dan Archer, I spill a, a um, I spill my orange juice over you. And Esther says to me, oh, I forgive you. Now, I think Dan might quite reasonably think that's a bit odd and be annoyed and say, but he spilt the orange juice on me. How can Esther forgive him? Who are our sins against? They're against God. And so, of course, only God can forgive them. These Bible teachers are half right. And what's Jesus' response? It's in verse 10. It's to claim he is the son of man. Uh, In quite a few times in this chapter 2, Jesus is making claims that draw on the Old Testament. The scriptures that these Bible teachers claim to follow. And he says, I'm that son of man that appeared in Daniel chapter 7. A mysterious character so closely related to God, he seems to possibly be God. And Jesus doesn't just claim it, he does a miracle to back up the claim. And so, verse 12, the people praise God. We've seen something amazing here. And so should the religious leaders praise God. They've been given reason to praise God. But instead, we move into verse 13 to 17. Instead, they're objecting to Jesus again. This time, it's Jesus can't be good if he's spending his time mixing with that sort of person. What sort of person? Well, have a look. Verse 14, 15. Jesus is at dinner with a load of people whose aim in life is just to get money for self. And they'll even do it by cheating others. And they'll even do it by working for the Roman enemy. The objection is Jesus can't be a good man if he's spending his time mixing with these. And Jesus' response, verse 17, is these are like ill people and I'm the doctor. I'm the person who can put people right on the deepest level. And that is what I've come to do. Jesus gives them a reasonable answer. It's all about who he is. And if only they'd stop to think about it, it's good news. But instead, we get more opposition to Jesus. We move into verses 18 to 22. This time, they don't like that Jesus and his disciples aren't fitting in with their religious expectations. They're they're not fasting. That is going without food for religious reasons. Now, we could get here into an interesting consideration of fasting and there would be some use in that because it is still something that is good for us to do. But it isn't the point here in Mark 2. What is the point? The point is, how does Jesus respond to people being against him? And again, it's all about who he is. He says in verse 19, I am the bridegroom. I'm the bridegroom. Now, what's he mean? Well, imagine you go to a wedding and I think it's a bit strange at this wedding. Everyone's dressed in black. And nobody's talking much. They're all looking pretty solemn. 
And afterwards, you go along to a hotel for the reception, and there everyone, dressed in all their black, looking solemn, is just sitting around quietly, and there's no food in sight. And you wait for the food to be served, and no food is. And maybe you go up to the bar to get a drink. No, 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 we're not doing that. No, it's all closed. No food, no drink, no eating. Well, I presume and hope you haven't been to a wedding like that. Because at weddings, you have feasting to celebrate, not fasting to mourn. And Jesus is saying, me being here is reason to celebrate, not to fast. But he's also saying something more when he says, I am the bridegroom. Remember, the opposition is coming from teachers of the Bible. And they should and surely did know this. In the Bible, for example, Hosea, Hosea's prophecy, the bridegroom of God's people, Israel, is God himself. Again, for the third time, Jesus makes big claims for himself, claims that if only they accepted them, would bring joy. But again, instead, they find fault. Let's move on to verses 23 to 28. This time they're going through a field of corn and the disciples of Jesus pick something to eat. Well, they pick some of the grains of corn to eat. And the Pharisees, uh, they seem to always hang around. Are they like stalkers? There they are. And they say, picking corn, that's work. That's harvesting. And it's the Sabbath day, so that's not allowed. For Jesus to allow this, that shows he's not serious about God's law. Now, Jesus doesn't get mad with these nitpicking, silly critics and shout at them. Come on, I've shown you enough. When are you going to get it? When are you going to clear off and leave me alone? No, he, he calmly reasons with them. He reasons from the scriptures that they already knew. And he finishes it with another big claim about himself. There it is in verse 28. He says, he is the son of man who is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath, that, that's, that's a very strange thing to say. What was the Sabbath all about? It was about giving a day to God. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the day to be given to God. Well, without using the words, I am God, he's got about as near as you can to claiming it. And then we get into chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And you find how far these religious people will go in their rejection of Jesus. Right from the start, see it there in verse 2, they're looking for a reason to find fault with Jesus. What a horrible attitude when people are looking. Can I find a fault? I'm looking for one. What a horrible attitude. And notice how they'll do it. How are they going to find a fault with him? Verse 2 and 3, well, verse 2 there. There's a man whose hand doesn't work and they're hoping Jesus will heal him. And then they can say, got you, you're breaking the Sabbath. Now notice what that means. It means they think Jesus works miracles. They're expecting he'll do one. They're hoping he'll do one. Not because they love this man and want him healed. No, because they want to get Jesus. In a sense, they are not unbelievers. They're not unbelievers. Their problem isn't unbelief. 
They actually believe Jesus can do amazing things. There's something special about Jesus, but they will not have him. And they're looking for an excuse to not have him. Jesus has an answer that should really get to their hearts, that should really wake them up to what's going on. His answer is in verse 4. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? He's going to do good and he's going to help a life, save a life. And he's saying, is that lawful on the Sabbath? But why does he contrast it with killing? No one thought killing was lawful on any day, let alone the Sabbath. Ah, because he's about to do good and save a life. They are plotting to kill a life. And he knows it. And his question should get to them. Here's a man about to do good on the Sabbath, and we are on the Sabbath plotting to kill him. And does he know it? It should awaken them. But instead, verse 6, chapter 3, verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Their heart is hardened to to the end. Now, that was a speedy tour of Mark 2. That was a bit like the aeroplane flying overhead and you look down and you see some of the major features of the land below you. Next week, we might land in some places and look at them in more detail. But today is all the aeroplane just looking out at the main features of the landscape below. One of the reasons I've done that is to help you with reading the Bible. I hope you read the Bible for yourself regularly. And as you do, don't just look for what does this make me think of? Because that can so often be a matter of, well, what just happens to be on my mind? What sort of things do I look for and like and have thought of already? Instead, look for signs. What is the writer thinking of under the influence of the Holy Spirit? And the more of the Bible you read, the more likely you are to to see the themes that keep coming up, the repetitions, the phrases that he keeps dropping in and see what God is saying to you. I'm also doing this to try to persuade you the Bible's a really well written book. Mark was writing history, but he grouped it together, not necessarily in the order it came, but in in the order that gives the themes that he wants you to see. It's well written. You know, people say, ah, the Bible's this really big book and you can make it say whatever you want. No, it's not true. It's a well written book that can show you and make clear to you what the writer, what God through the writer wants you to learn. Well, hopefully you've got a better understanding of Mark 2 from that speedy tour of it. But what's the point? What what are we supposed to learn from it? Well, I've got three things for three different groups of people. First of all, helping seekers. This is a help to those who are seeking after the truth. Maybe you're here wondering about God. Uh, Let's start with an illustration, though. At school, you're taught about Henry VIII. And the teacher tells you all about Henry VIII and his life and his rule and the big things that happened in the country at that time. And then you get asked, right, what have you learnt about Henry VIII? And you say, well, I've learnt that divorce is wrong. 
And I've learned that it's um, a bad idea to get married six times. Well, that's true. And uh, that's nice. You've learned that. And that might be a help. But it isn't really what the lessons were about. Learning history isn't primarily about getting tips for life and marriage advice. It's primarily about learning about Henry VIII and knowing what happened to him. Well, what Mark is writing here isn't firstly tips for life. It's history about Jesus. Mark's told us back in chapter 1, verse 1, he's got good news about Jesus. The word gospel means good news. He says this is all about good news about Jesus. And here he's giving us eyewitness evidence. Jesus healing people. Jesus answering his critics, Jesus mixing with needy people, Jesus backing up his big claims. He's building up the good news about Jesus. He's showing us Jesus as the son of man, the doctor we need, the Lord of the Sabbath, the bridegroom. And they're all pieces in a jigsaw, which putting together will show you Jesus is the Christ, the son of God and That is good news for you. That's what Mark is doing here. Now, the second half of Mark will show you where it's leading. This man, he's described who he is. Why did he come? Well, chapter nine onwards is all about Jesus going to die. Why did Jesus get killed? Well, chapter two, again, is part of building up the jigsaw and it's saying because there were religious leaders who didn't want him and they plotted to kill him. But Mark two is also showing you it wasn't Jesus as this helpless victim. It wasn't Jesus losing control. Here he is in calm control. And yet he went to die. Why did he go to die? Why did they manage to kill him? Well, there's a key verse in Mark. You might like to turn forward to chapter 10. It's only a few pages. Sorry, I don't know what's happening to this microphone. I wonder if I should have the one that Ben was using. You've still got it, Ben. And I can, I'll give that one a try. If you just turn forward a few pages to Mark 10, verse 45. One of the key verses in Mark. Thank you, Ben. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life for others. You see, that's how he's the doctor who deals with our deepest problem. He's going to give himself to pay for our sin that separates us from God. That's how he's the Son of Man who forgives sin. He's going to give himself. And for those who aren't familiar with this, Mark 2 is... Not just expecting you to, oh yeah, I accept that without really knowing much about it. It's building up the picture. Who he is, how he was attacked, and yet he ended up giving himself, dying to be the doctor, to be the bridegroom, to be the son of man who forgives sins. So if you're wondering about Christianity, maybe you're even looking for God, Mark 2 was written to help you. It's showing you, it's giving you evidence from his life 
so that you can make an informed decision and rely on him, trust him, and he can bring you and God together. It's written to help seekers. It's also written to warn rejectors. Let's go back to Mark 2 and verses 6 and 7. Mark 2 verses 6 and 7. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there and they were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, how would you describe these people? There's all sorts of ways you could describe them. Nasty, critical, arrogant. But I think it could include this. They're confident in their own thoughts and they are not impressed by Jesus. Confident in their own thoughts and not impressed by Jesus. Does that describe you? Well, there could be plenty of people in, who sit in a church and are confident in their own thoughts and not impressed by Jesus. And if it does describe you, Mark 2 is telling you, take notice of two things. And the first one is really good news. It's this, how patient Jesus is. As we went through Mark 2, we heard Jesus again and again speaking so reasonably to these people. There was a man in a debating competition and he had some notes. And there was a point in his notes where it said, argument weak here, shout louder. And that's often a response, isn't it? The argument's weak, I'll just shout louder, hope they don't notice. Jesus was not like that. In Mark 2, we find him calmly reasoning with them, giving them evidence for why they should accept the good news he has, showing them why they should change their minds. Mark 2 is showing you how patient Jesus is. But then it's also doing this. It's showing you what danger you're in. What happens as the chapter progresses? As the chapter goes on, what happens to these people who reject Jesus? Oh, they get harder and harder. Each time Jesus shows himself to them, they resist and reject and their heart gets, their heart gets that bit harder. And by chapter three, they're not just finding fault, they're looking to find fault. Jesus has been so patient with them. But they push it and push it and they push it too far. And you get to chapter 3, verse 5. He looked round at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. What a dangerous situation to have Jesus angry at your stubbornness. And later in the Gospels, he stops telling them the good news. There comes a point when he stops telling them the good news and the only words he has for them are words of judgment. They've had their chance. They've been shown the truth and they close their ears to it. And a time can come when it is too late. Do you know that? It is a dangerous thing to keep rejecting Jesus and presume that in the end it will be all right. So don't ignore Jesus appealing to you. Do you know the picture, the scream, that funny picture of a person screaming? Well, I'm told a story about it that I haven't managed to find out if it's true or not. If anyone knows, I'd be grateful to know, although if it's not, it might kill my illustration. But I was told that it was in an art gallery 
and the security guard heard the alarm going. And he saw the light flashing on the panel and he thought, oh, it must just be a faulty alarm. And he switched it off. And you can guess what it was. It wasn't a faulty alarm. It was someone stealing that very expensive painting, the screen. Oh, boy, that security guard must have been in big trouble. Haven't managed to find out if, if that story is true. It, it was stolen. That bit is true. And I was told that the security guard thought the alarm must be faulty. Just switch it off. If your conscience tells you Jesus is true and that you ought to turn to him, don't switch off the alarm. Don't presume it's faulty. Take notice. Don't be like these Mark II people and get hardened. Jesus has good news for you if you'll only humbly accept it. I said three groups of people that Mark II has a lesson for. Here's the last one. Encouraging believers. Rejecting Jesus might just sound like a miserable subject, but there is encouragement here for believers. We are surrounded by rejection of Jesus. I hope we're realistic about it. On the big scale, there is the, the just collapse of church attendance in the UK and the West. On the small scale, maybe you've tried telling some people about Jesus and found that they just don't want to know. And that can be really hard to take. And then there's the troubling recent scandals there have been in the church. Really respected Bible teachers and church leaders who have then turned out to be very far from following Jesus. And these things really trouble us. But Mark 2 is full of that. People rejecting Jesus and Bible teachers who were really respected turning out to be quite rotten at heart. But it's quickly followed by, well, what's the very next verse? Chapter 3, verse 7. It is quickly followed by crowds following Jesus. It is quickly followed by chapter 3, verse 13. The leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel may reject Jesus, but he has his 12 apostles. While some reject, he replaces. And then in chapter 4, it's quickly followed by Jesus is like a sower. And while some of his seed falls on ground that won't let it in, others, other of his seed falls on ground where it bears amazing crops, some even multiplying a hundred times. It's all telling us there are people who reject Jesus, but it won't stop him. There are people who oppose Jesus, but he'll still build his church and he'll still have his people. Over lockdown on YouTube, there's a church in, in Cardiff that's been putting on a series called Before They Leave the Stage. They, they've been interviewing retired ministers before they leave the stage. I think it's implying these men are about to die. I don't know what the men think of that. But anyway, it's been interesting hearing these retired ministers. And a couple of weeks ago, it was a man called Philip Eveson. He was um, principal of a theological seminary in London and minister of a church in London. And they asked him, what are your thoughts on the state of the church at the moment? He said, well, in the UK, it's in a sorry state. And in the West, it's so weak. But he said, his work in a seminary and a London church means he's, he's come into contact with people all over the world and travelled far and wide. And 
you've got to remember the church is much bigger than we often see it. It's growing in China and the southeast of Asia. It's growing in many parts of Africa. It's growing in repressive Iran. It's growing in South America. Well, that list, if you think about it, is a very large part of the world. The work of Jesus is not failing. And even in the UK, although many people who've had a background of knowing about Christianity and turning up to church have hard-heartedly rejected, there are also many people who know nothing about Christianity who are quite open to hearing about Jesus. So don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't keep quiet or get shouty and defensive. Mark 2 says, yes, we've got to be realistic. There are people who reject Jesus, but he will still build his church. And as we read on in Mark 2, we'll even find that he uses these disciples who are such a mixed up bunch to do it. So have Mark 2's calm, reasoned confidence in Jesus and make him known.